Hello and welcome back to the Primary Education Voices podcast, the podcast dedicated to the exciting world of primary education with me, your host, Matt Roberts. If you're a member of staff in primary education, then this podcast is for you. Each episode will be interviewing a special guest who works in a primary setting and be finding out what inspires them. We'll also be asking them for their top tips, resources and philosophies that they are passionate about in this profession. And of course, share some of the funny stories that happen along the way. Before I introduce our special guest today uh, to you, I just want to uh, point you and signpost you towards our new and exciting website for the Primary Education Voices podcast. Uh, It is a podcast companion website. And so um, it is ideal if you listen to this podcast, because what it does is it takes each of our episodes uh, and it breaks them down uh, into each episode and tells you and gives you all of the um, kind of links, websites and any resources that they refer to on their episode right there on the website page for you. So, for example, if you listen to episode one uh, and, uh, and the inspirational Gaz Needle, um, we talked about Primary Rocks and there's a link there to the Primary Rocks uh, Twitter uh, feed on on Twitter. He also mentioned um, kind of his experience of reading aloud and uh, and listening to Jack and Ori and Rick Mayall. And there's a, a, a link to a, a YouTube video there with Rick. He also mentions at Merrill Teachers as an educator who makes the teaching of art accessible. And we've uh, linked her website on there. And of course, he, one of his primary three uh, was the sharing of his idea of keyboard shortcuts being a very uh, useful time saver. And we have uh, put his file uh, of keyboard shortcuts there for you with a one click download available for you. So that's, uh, and of course, the the couple of individuals that he recommended for a future podcast, they are links on there too. So you've got uh, a number of things on there. We've also got Dr. Victoria Carr's episode, Kirsty Stubbs and Alan Sue's um, episodes on there. And of course, Alan Sue, I'm going to mention his because his was a brilliant, really practical episode about primary computing. Um, and he shared a number of websites and resources and ideas. And we've linked all of those websites and resources on there for you. Um, so that once you've listened, if you think, oh, that sounded great, you can just go to the website um, and it's easily accessible there. So please bookmark it. Please um, follow uh, the link to it. I'll po- I'll share the link to the website on, on my uh, as my pinned tweet on uh, Primary Education Voices, which is at P-R-I-M-E-D-U Voices, Prime Ed- Edu Voices. Uh, and please visit and have a look and uh, hopefully it'll be useful for you as you uh, enjoy listening to this podcast. As you receive this on the 30th of August, this is actually, it will be actually 20 days after I record this introduction. And so I imagine we'll have some more of the episodes completed on there for you beyond episode four of this podcast. Please bear with us as it does take time to uh, to backlog, um, go through the backlog of episodes that we've gotten through so far. This is obviously episode 26 today, uh, but in the, in, the, in the future, I'm sure we'll catch up. Uh, and we'll have um, a great bank of resources ready there for you. So please do have a look and share that as well. Anyway, let's get on to today's uh, podcast episode. Today, we sit down with Simon Kidwell. Simon was recommended by a number of individuals, particularly uh, by Chris Dyson uh, in his episode. Uh, and I'm so glad that we could uh, get Simon into the Primary Education Voices podcast. Uh, he's got a wealth of experience. He is a, a head teacher. He also works as, a, the, as the Cheshire Branch Secretary for the NAHT. He's a national exec and early years sector council. Uh, and he's just got a lot of uh, in, um, kind of roles that he has in primary education. And so a lot of experience that he draw, draws from as we uh, sat down together today to have this um, ep- this episode together. So grateful for his time. Uh, I won't put you in suspense any longer for this. I'll uh, share a bit of a summary as always at the end. Uh, sit back, relax and listen to the um, primary education voice of Simon Kidwell.
Hello and welcome to the podcast, Simon Kidwell. How are you doing today, Simon? Good afternoon, Matt, and uh, it's good to be beyond the middle of the school holidays. Fantastic. We're getting a bit of sun now, so hopefully we can have a, have a drier end uh, than what we've had so far. Um, thank you, first of all, for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Um, so we'll start with the quick fire questions. Uh, and so if you could just answer these as succinctly as you can, then this will give us a bit of an idea of your background and your journey so far in primary education. So first of all, Simon, what is your Twitter handle? It's at Simon Kidwell. Nice and straightforward. Fantastic. Um, how many years have you been in primary education? Um, I started teaching in 1994, so I'm coming up to 27 years. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Um, and in that, in those 27 years, what has been your journey so far? What roles, responsibilities have you had during that time? So I started um, as an NQT and then I, I quickly moved school. I started in a fantastic school, but wanted to get close to home. So took a promotion as an assessment and maths leader to school in Stoke-on-Trent. Um, then in 1999, I became a deputy head teacher in Cheshire a town called Winsford, became an acting head in 2005 and I've been um, a head teacher ever since. But I also um, I've got a wider role as a school improvement advisor for the local authority. And I'm also um, part of the national executive um, for the National Association of Head Teachers. And I support colleagues as the branch secretary for Cheshire, NEHT and as the Northwest uh, representative there. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, what is your favourite subject and, and why is that your favourite subject, Simon? Well, I was always good at maths and I, I wanted to be a secondary maths teacher originally, but then I, I, I will probably talk about it later. But then I got diverted to the duties of primary school. So I loved it and I love teaching maths as a teacher. Um, I had an opportunity to become a maths advisor, which I didn't take when I was a young teacher, but I kind of regret. That's one of the regrets I have, really. I didn't take a couple of years out to become a, um, a maths advisor. Hmm. Well, what is it about maths that, that interests you so much then? Well, first, I was I was good at it at school, which and I also had very good maths teachers. But also, I, I realised that when I got to A level maths, if your teacher wasn't very good, um, we had our teacher went off poorly for a few weeks. Really, is key that you got that really good communicator because it's a it's a subject where you need to do things in very logical steps. It can be a very creative subject if you if you use in that way, and it's also it, it's just a, a skill, a life skill that uh, stays with you for forever. If you if you're numerate, you can you can get by and um, navigate a lot of the, the things around leadership that we have to deal with. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, in your own education, Simon, um, what who was a favourite teacher of yours and why? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and it's one from I can answer quite easily, even though I had many, many good teachers, but it was my final year teacher in Stoke, um, a gentleman called Mr. Rowe. He was a deputy head teacher like yourself, Matt, at the time, um, an inspirational teacher. We, we left school in Stoke at year seven at that time. I don't know quite why. Um, <laughs> I think it was just peculiar to where he went, but he was he was an inspiration. And, and, and he was a person that really made me um, realise I was a very good mathematician, but he also taught me to write creatively because I wasn't particularly strong at uh, writing as I was there. Um, and I wrote a letter to him a few years ago when GCSE results came out two years ago just to say thank you for being such an inspiration and talking about my journey as a primary school teacher. Not sure if that letter ever got to him, not sure he's still alive actually, but um, I hope his family are in receipt of that letter because it was a really cathartic and wonderful, warm thing to do was to write a letter of thank you to my uh, uh, year seven teacher as was at my primary school in Stoke-on-Trent. 
That's a lovely idea. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. It sounds like you had a great impact on you, which is uh, part, mm. partly why many of us, and when we've had these discussions with teachers over this uh, podcast time, um, a lot of times te- these kind of teachers have inspired us to become you know, the teachers we are today, which is, uh, which is interesting. It's like the biggest work work experience going, isn't it? When you're in school for so many years, then you get an idea whether you want to be a teacher or not. You start yeah. your work experience at four and leave when you're 18. So. <laughs> That's so true. That's brilliant. Uh, and finally, the final quick fire question. You've done really well with these. If you had to, or if you already do, what after school club would you run? Oh, I always used to enjoy running football, um, but then... <laughs> But then my football coaching skills aren't that good, and I think I just relied on enthusiasm. So um, I'd, I'd love to start. I'd love to start. A, and I like cycling as well. I used to love it when we used to take the children out cycling as part out of Sustrans when we had a Sustrans office in local area. So I'd really like to, to go and start up a cycling club where we can take the children out because we've got some great towpaths and places around where our school is, and just showing the children local area. So yes, I must uh, now after school clubs are on. I must uh, take my bike and start doing an after school cycling club yeah that's a great idea i love that well thank you very much for that that's fantastic we'll go into kind of the more scheduled questions that you're a bit more aware of now uh, and so the first one really is to as, as is to ask about where it all began for you what inspired you to become involved in primary education in the first place well, there was those was that teacher, Mr. Rowe. I think he was the, the one that really switched the light on for me to know that, um, you know, that, that, that what the joys of primary school could be. Um, but then I, I, I had vague ideas. I had a couple of friends whose parents were teachers. So my parents both worked for the National Coal Board, and most of the males in my family, if you were a male, you went to work down the coal mine. So, um, but my dad was quite keen for me not to work um in the same industry as him so um he did encourage me to to do a levels encourage me to go to university so that was um that was that was a thing that um but i didn't really know what i wanted to do but i did have vague ideas about becoming a maths teacher what changed my mind though was a young uh, a, a young a young man now called joe joe wills and he was a son of my best friend at university still my best friend um and um they they unusual at university richard and carolyn because they had a young child and that was quite unusual. So because um, we shared a house together, I uh, used to get babysitting duties. And I remember uh, really enjoying uh, the babysitting and reading the uh, Mr. Men books by Roger Hargreaves over and over again. And and then it came quite clear that I was, I was good at communicating with young children. And um, I also um, was encouraged as well by a friend who's a, whose dad was a head teacher. And he talked about the variety of primary school teaching compared to teaching a, a subject like maths at secondary. So I, I'd I dipped my toe in the water and applied for a PGSE in, in, in primary school. Um, and don't regret it for a moment. Um, I really do um, do enjoy the, the whole idea of taking children from three at our school to the age of 11 because you see such a change and such a difference. And, of course, it's the longest time children ever spend in a school environment, the eight years we have them. And it's a real privilege that parents trust them with those those formative years. And when I hear about the A-level results coming out today, I've already heard from some of the... Um, the children um the families that came to our school and i'm delighted to see how well they're doing um and the fact that uh, they made that great start um at uh, primary school so yeah that was the that was what what um what made the decision i'd still like to be uh, a secondary school teacher part of me and i'd, I'd love to run an, an all through school actually there's not any 
all through schools in Cheshire West and Chester where I work. But I love the idea of having a, a school that takes children from from three to sixteen or three to eighteen. That would be really exciting. But uh, at the moment, uh, those opportunities haven't um, haven't presented themselves. Yeah, actually, that's a really good shout with the all through with the all through schools. I've spoken to a few people who work in those settings, and it just sounds ideal that you know you don't have that issue of transition from year six to year seven yeah. and all of that is just a, a journey of, and a family all the way through from you know early years right through to the a levels now it sounds like it'd be a great uh, opportunity that there's, there's a great school in leeds called car manor school which uh, is an author's school and uh, we hosted a conference there a few years ago and that ethos just and those values run all the way through the school it's a fantastic school uh, it was a real privilege to spend the day there and some of their staff and and, and young people were part of that conference that we held um, a couple of years ago. Mm. Oh, I'm going to ask a, a, a question just to dig a bit deeper on this. So obviously it sounds like it's kind of um, this push from your, and this encouragement from your parents to kind of go to university, get that education and make that decision there, that love of learning of maths and things that led you into education itself. But then primary, interestingly, like you say, because you recognised a, a an ability or a skill in working with those young children yourself. Do, do you remember the first time you were stood in front of a class and you were teaching that class? And how did that feel like? Yeah, it was on teaching practice in Stafford. I, I returned, I went to uh, Newcastle Pontine University, but then returned home to Staffordshire to do my teaching practice. It was it stood in front of a class in Stafford and it was terrifying. It was. It really was terrifying. Just, just in front of thirty individuals who were, who were hanging on your every word, and and, and the same experience. First time you did an assembly, oh, uh, that was yeah. that was the same. You know, all these children. But then it becomes a norm, doesn't it? It just becomes there. But yeah, it was it, it was it was terrifying. And I I, um, I worked with an excellent mentor when I did my PGSE, and I was and quite in awe really of, of how how she went and uh, how the attention the class and taught them so skillfully mm-hmm. so yeah it was um, it was a terrifying experience but but equally i felt at home in the school environment i felt at home um working um working in schools and i absolutely thrived during my pgc year at keel it was a real year of growth where i knuckled down really i probably hadn't worked as hard as i could have done during my degree or my a-levels there were always better things to do but once i got into the pgc and teaching i realized this was my my my, my, my calling this was what i wanted to do so i started to work um, a lot harder than i had previously hmm. that's fantastic i think we all we all remember that feeling being stood in front of that class of 30 kids who for some magical reason have got all their attention on you in, in most cases obviously if you thought yes um fantastic well let's go on to uh, kind of one of those uh, funny stories that you can share with us from being in primary education in your time that you've had yeah i'm going to share a story matt if it's okay of my, my first day of, of teaching um when i was paid actually so um it was the summer of 1994 i, I had passed my pgc year by and i'd secured a job in a wonderful school in stafford as a year six teacher but they asked me to come in and do a day's half a day supply for them and said they'd pay me so this was amazing uh, that i'd get paid for doing something that i'd been been trained to do um so my pgc year was exciting i went to keel i, I lived with chris dyson for a period of that time because we did our our pgc year together and um that was that was an interesting interesting time so um so I went to sit, teach this year six class and it was um, I was asked to teach the morning lessons and it was it was maths and English. Um, and the teacher was called Mrs. Sainsbury. I've, I've changed the names for obvious reasons. Um, and she left me some planning mat. And, and let me tell you, this planning was thin. It was as thin as one of those posh after dinner mints. And it consisted of five words, fractions, 
and a friendship acrostic. So I thought, no problem. Uh, there was a fra- I had a fractions lesson up my sleeve that I'd aced on teaching practice. And I'd recently attended a poetry workshop with a young up and coming poet called, you might have heard for him being a, a Manchester teacher called Lem Sesse. Um, so he had this brilliant workshop with Lem. So I, I started off with a fractions lesson. It went swimmingly well. I aced enumerators and denominators. We even dipped our toes into the murky world of equivalent fractions. And I thought, yeah, I've got this teaching log sourced. Yeah, I'm getting paid, which is a cherry on the cake. And um, I'm really, I've, I've, I've got this. This, this is it. I'm, I'm nailing it. So I was super keen. So I offered to cover the lunch duty um, for my teaching partner. And I went and I remember executing a perfect Rabona on the playground when the ball came towards me because I was obviously <laughs> quite good at football then which I'm not anymore um, and I was just really chuffed myself so I went into the, the second lesson after the maths lesson and the Rabona on the on the playground feeling quite confident quite buoyed with my football skills and decided to ditch the acrostic friendship and to go for a, a lesson that Lem Sesse had um, taught us which is um, to use UR poems as a, as a, as a structure so I started off the class by sharing some, doing some shared writing. And I remember the lines that I wrote. The first line was, you are the crescent moon hovering in the midnight sky like a curled question mark. The second line, I think I got these from Lem. I don't think these are something I remember <laughs> for myself. You are the smell of autumn, the morning after the 5th of November. So the kids were hooked. I set them off and they were on fire using personification, alliteration, similes and poetic techniques, frankly, I'd never even heard of. Um, the class were no longer 11-year-olds, Matt. They were, with poor dictionary skills, they were fledgling poets. Mm. And halfway through the lesson, I asked for volunteers to read out their first verse. So the first stop was Anya. She paused, looked at the audience and read out her poem with complete grace and composure. And the class were transfixed. Next stop was Abid. He went and nailed it with his uh, creative use of imagery and personification. And next up, I chose a confident child called Billy, who I suspected was the class clown. So Billy stood up when reading the poem, which was a confident step because he sat down. He cleared his throat and he began. You are the beep on my shoe. And he stopped. The class gasped. Billy's mates were about to burst out giggling and 30 pairs of eyes looked at me, including Mrs. Tuff, who was the fearsome TA who was uh, in the class at the time. So Billy stood there eyeballing me, waiting for my next move. And I froze for a second. And I thought, what should I do? What would Mrs. Jones, my mentor, do? What would Lem Sisse do? So I walked over to Billy and I asked him to show me the first line to make sure I hadn't misheard him. I hadn't. So I reached into my sparse behaviour management toolkit and quietly asked Billy to show his poem to Mrs. P next door. So ashen-faced, he left the room um, to show his verse to Mrs. P. Order was restored and Mrs. Tuffin crossed her arms and the class got back on track. Ten minutes later, Matt, I received a note from Mrs. P. I unfolded the note and it said, what is it? And I thought it was a bit strange because she'd capitalised the letters I and T and they were quite close together. So I thought Billy must be trying to pull the wool over Mrs. P's eyes and he was clearly denying that he'd sworn in front of the class. So I annotated the note and put an envelope and spelt out the letters S-H-I-T. I sealed the note and sent it back to Mrs. P. And we continued to crack on with our poems, but Billy was still yet to return. 
later, I got another note delivered from Mrs. P and she had annotated the first note and she says, no, what is pi? You you know, the number you work at the circumference of a circle with. So I clearly saw my error. I'd, I'd mistaken the, the letters I and T for the Greek symbol pi. Um, so <laughs> deeply embarrassed because my first day teaching in the school, I scribbled 3.142 on the note and returned it to Mrs. P the next, uh, the next <laughs> class next door. So and then we, we I was then the, um, the, the kind of. Um, a source of much hilarity in the staff room because I'd uh, on my first day of teaching I'd clearly got the wrong end of the stick with uh, with the what is uh, what is pie uh, story. So that was my first day of teaching, and I've got many other experiences where I've completely put, put my foot in it over the years. But it was uh, it was a lovely to see that kind of atmosphere in the staff room where we laughed about our shared experience and the fact that I'd got the uh, complete wrong end of the stick. Love that, love that. Thank you so much for sharing it. You know, it's just. Uh... I think there's so many things happening in a school day, isn't, isn't there? And just when you're looking at a note and you've got a class in front and you're looking at it at first glance, it can easily happen to any one of us, can't it, where you just misread it and then just send that back, <laughs> which is great. Well, thanks for that. I really enjoyed that. Right. Well, we're going to move on now uh, to your primary three, Simon. Uh, so these are the three things, three things about primary education that you think are really important. They can be resources, ideas, philosophies. I've left it really open uh, so that anyone, any guest that comes on can just share the things that they think are really going to help other teachers that listen to this podcast. Uh, so thank me, thank you, thank you for sending me yours, Simon, beforehand. Uh, and the first one uh, that we're going to talk about is keeping the main thing the thing. So do you want to sp- explain a little bit what you mean by that and why that's such an important thing for you in primary education? Yeah, keeping the main thing the main thing is is a, is a quote often attributed to um, to Stephen Covey. And Stephen Covey, I read my first ever leadership book. I did my MPQH back in 1997, I think it was. Um, and the first leadership book we were asked to, to, to read was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And um, I think I really annoyed my, my friends and wife because I kept going around quoting this uh, chap and uh, doing different things. And a lot of it what I, that I read, it sounded good, but I'd not had a chance to put it into practice. I wasn't um, in a senior leadership position at the time, even though I'd just been uh, selected to go on the MPQH. But it kind of, as, as, I, as I started leading school, it became evident that um, you had to go and think about what you worked on. When I was first, uh, and, and uh, my first experience of headship was in a um, in a school where I was acting, um, I was deputy, so I was in an acting position for the first eight months, and that was a dream because um, I knew the staff, I knew the children, I knew the families, and we had a, a joyous eighteen months uh, in that school. And I just kind of continued the work that we were doing. It was quite an organic um, transition. However, my next school. Um, that I took over was in special measures and it was in a real mess it was it was it was broken in many ways um, the school had lost over 200 pupils in a space for a few years it had five heads in a few years and the school was pretty broken and I was a young head teacher who was quite you know confident but I, I, I didn't really have the skills to to turn the school around I didn't really know what I was doing to be honest um and so I did I did everything I did everything people told me to do everything local authority told me to do everything Ofsted told me to do and we ended up doing far too much um and and, and none of it really got embedded and stuck so after about 12 months we had a brilliant HMI come into the school called Brian Paget, um who was I think the lead HMI for the northwest at the time and and, and he didn't just treat Ofsted as a, a kind of a snapshot judging to the school how well we were doing in our journey out of special measures he kind of 
he kind of coached me and, and, and worked with me and then just talked about, um, you know, evidence-based practice and, and, and doing less things, but in, in, in you know, in greater depth to, to, to quote Mary might. And, and so since then I've realized that you've got to really make sure that any primary school improvement is simple. Um, and basically I think primary schools are about making sure that children can read, write, count and be kind. And, and they're the things and making sure that you don't overburden staff with too many initiatives, making sure that um, initiatives that you do are right for your school, because what works well in one school may not um, be, be, be right in another. So it's keeping thing, keeping that main thing, which is making sure the children leave us with those skills of, of high degrees of literacy, numeracy, confidence and kindness. That's the main thing for me. And, and if I'm leading a school that does that, then I, I think um, we're doing we're doing a pretty good job. And uh, it's making sure that uh, you always keep those things and, and making sure once you know children have got that platform then to move on to the rest of their school life and those those skills will stay with them. Mm, that's really, really good. I think I mean, obviously, this can apply obviously to very easily to school leaders who are in their school and their context thinking about what the changes need to happen or what or what needs to improve in that school but also actually i think for class teachers as well there are so many things out there so many resources so many things pulling at teachers uh, attentions that you know if they try and do everything all in one go it's just all going to come out not working out very well and so i think this can apply to a teacher in the classroom as well so thinking on that then simon and, and kind of digging a bit deeper with this say that um, you are a, a school leader in your school or, or you're a teacher in the classroom and there is something new that you do want to try but you're also aware that there's lots of things going on as well what would be your advice to that individual that wants to try out something new but doesn't want to kind of mess up the things that are already in place what would you say to that individual yeah i think you go and say um would you like to trial it? Um, depending on what it is, you know, if it's uh, completely changing the way you teach phonics um, um, or, or writing, that's obviously a slightly different thing. But if you want to try something uh, different, then you, you you trial it. And, and school improvement for me isn't about me telling staff what to do. It's about staff coming up with those great ideas. Um, one of the... Um, we went to see Chris Dyson school. And I, as I said earlier, I'd known Chris for a long time. And, and, and Chris was quite a new head at the time when I went up on it. And I thought, what, what, what could Chris Dyson teach me really? I've, uh, I've been a head teacher for 12 years, I think at the time. And Chris was a relatively new, enthusiastic new head, but we went up to see the work he does at Parklands with my maths coordinator in a school where I was a school improvement advisor for the time. So we, we drove up to Leeds and we saw some of the most amazing maths practice. It was, it was amazing. And, 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 and KTR maths coordinator really liked the idea of doing early bird maths that they do at Parkland. So, so she trialed it and she went and trialed it in her class and, and, and saw how it worked. And then she was able to then, um, and go and make sure that the, the rest of the school followed that approach. And I think if you've got people doing in the classroom, when you've been out in the classroom as long as I have, Matt, for 17 years, you know, I can I can have all the great ideas, but I need those practitioners who are going to run with it in their class to prove that it's a really good, um, it, it, it can work. Um, we, we, we transitioned from using our VLE during lockdown to Teams, and it was a huge learning curve in January. But two, two brilliant teachers trialed that and went and um, ran with it, and then they were able to at speed get the other staff up and running so for me it's it's absolutely manna from heaven when a young teacher comes and said i'd like to try this out mm -hmm. because it means we can um you know we can go and we've got enthusiastic people who who can lead from the middle and, and school improvement for me is just as much about, about middle leadership as it is around senior leadership because 
I'm I'm no longer the teaching expert. I'm the leadership expert in our school, but um, my my teaching skills are pretty pretty rusty. So I rely on my middle leaders to to drive improvement. I love that, and I think, like you say, it's uh, it it comes from the people that are there in the day to day of it. You know, doing that role, doing that teaching, and they obviously have that understanding of how things will work better in the classroom because they're in there. You know, all, virtually all the time do, doing that teaching, uh, which, which is fantastic. Um, but it's also important you don't have, I mean, that keeping the main thing, the main thing. I have worked for school leaders where they want to do the latest fad, the latest thing and suffer from initiative-itis. And that can be quite draining on staff and, and, yeah. and, and nothing ever gets embedded. You know, you need to, you know, the best school improvement things that I've done have been longitudinal school improvement projects. I worked with Pi Corbaton talking on the primary writing project for, 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 for number, it was a three year professional development program. And, and it really did upskill the teachers um, skills in teaching writing. So the best stuff is repeated and revisited. And it's, it's circular because some staff pick things up very quickly and some staff need that repetition and reinforcement when you're doing a project exactly and i think it's understanding that um the uh the way you implement a, a school improvement project is not just a staff meeting then let it run you know it, it takes mm. time it takes different activities it takes different ways in working with the staff and letting them try it out in their own class even once it's been trialed in your own class you know i, I think this this applies like i say to anyone is you, as you said, you trial it in your own class. Perhaps you get a couple of individuals to to observe it in your classroom and see how mm. it works and get them enthused about it because then you've already got some individuals in that staff team who are on board with it and actually see the potential and the value in it. Uh, and that can help drive forward as well. And so it's just, like you said, it, it's it's building that, um, that structure and that uh, ethos with the team so that they are excited for, you know, adjustments to teaching that come along. But again, like you said, keeping those main things the main things don't get every single piece of thing that's happening in the world because it's just going to over overwhelm everyone that's really yes amazing. i've got a head teacher who's a, a very a brilliant head teacher is now a ceo of five schools and um uh, and i tease him i say he's, he's like a magpie like shining new things and and then he needs to slow down and just uh do, do a bit less sometimes so uh he's getting better at it now he's a ceo with thousands and thousands of children but uh when he was a primary head he just liked the next shiny new thing <laughs> yeah and and, and do you know that is tempting you know I, I i look when i'm on twitter and i see something I think, oh that looks fantastic i'm gonna take that and then before you know it after after 10 minutes on twitter you've got like a handful of things to try out in your classroom the next day and it's just the kids some and we've had a lot of discussion actually on this podcast consistency has come up a lot uh, mm. on this podcast uh, as a really important uh, primary three for a number of people and having children know and feel like that they know what's coming and that they are aware of how things are working in the classroom is a really key thing and so obviously if you are like that where you're magpieing everything and trying lots of new things at once the kids aren't even going to be able to cope it, with that overload it's a key to school improvement Matt, because you know children want to you don't want to unlearn and relearn every time they have a change of teacher the school i'm currently at was was a it was a good school when I, I took over. Well, it was requires improvement on Ofsted, but there were 15 teachers teaching in 15 different ways. Mm. You know, it just didn't have that common thread. So you do, have, you don't want robots. Yeah. And I love teachers who bring individual personality and flair into their classes, but you need to teach the basics in a consistent way. Otherwise, you just get getting confused. And it's it is important consistency uh, when it comes to school improvement. 
That's fantastic. Well, thank you for that. That's a that's a really really strong start. That a really uh, a good key to again school leadership, but actually thinking about how it can apply to the individual class as well. How teachers don't try and magpie everything at once, but maybe they pick a couple of things to try out that next half term, and they integrate it into their daily routine, uh, it, it, which is a much better way of working through it. That's fantastic. Let's move on to your second of the primary three, uh, which is relational practice. So again, do you want to explain to us a bit about what relational practice is for you, Simon? and uh, why that's so important. Yeah, some some people call it um, trauma-informed practice. We, we like the term in our school relational practice. Our local authority calls it uh, our ways of working because we've been doing a DfE project that's gone across health and social care as well. So it's about making sure that um, relationships and the way that we work across um across families and children is um is consistent um that it goes and puts the uh um, the child at the heart of those things and we make sure that relationships both in the classroom and in the staff room is is, is absolutely key so for, for the you know the touch points for this kind of work is the work that paul dix has done um the um the, the work that he did when he was with pivotal making sure you've got a consistent um and clear set of, of school rules making sure the culture is strong across the school and it's uh, consistent um again making sure that you um give children attention for their for their best uh, best conduct so really really good to you know to work with um work with paul on these um on, on on this consistent approach to behavior management then you also look at um the work that dave whittick has done where dave's written 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 a book called the kindness principle where he talks about that the relational practice that goes on within his schools and is the kind me trust now so for me it, it is at the heart of school improvement it's the heart of teaching because you know so many you know if you're an, an, a, a teacher and classroom management is a struggle for you every day can be a, a battle mm-hmm. so it is about uh, making sure we're skilling our our, our teachers and our um in, into making sure that uh that their, their behavior management and classroom practice is, is as strong as it can be so um it's also for for those children who are vulnerable i've i've worked in um, um, a school with a behavior um uh, it was it was a, a, a resource provision for behavior some of the most challenging children in cheshire west went to that and and children would come to us having moved, been moved on from two three sometimes four different schools by the time they got to us really challenging behavior and for me what we all need is that sense of belonging um, and that sense of belonging really no matter if we're adults when we come to a new school or whether it's uh, children but especially our most vulnerable children need to feel that they can they, they can they can belong so um, fostering that and making sure that we're consistent that we are consistently kind to the children that we are consistently calm that there's consistent calm adult behavior then that goes and, and awful long way to making sure that behavior in your school um, is, is as good as it can be so it's about uh, nurturing the children making sure we understand where they're coming from making sure there are clear boundaries so making sure that uh, children know what they are as well um, but making sure that we um that we we use consequences but we, we we think about consequences which are going to improve a child which aren't going to just uh um, make them feel that it's unfair um because we're um they're being punished unfairly so uh really really important uh, that for me in terms of school improvements and sort of skilling up new teachers around that it's also important as well for parents i think i think i i do a lot of trade union work um with my colleagues who are, who are head teachers and probably there's a, there's a couple of themes there it's about um when when head teachers or school leaders get into trouble sometimes it's falling out with the governors 
that can especially if the head falls out with the chair governors that can cause real challenge so i think it's important that you you know you, you, you build those relationships with your governors and i've got a very professional but strong relationship with my chair governors but we we make sure that you know we, we spend time together we um, we go and risk assess the london trip once a year make sure that we uh we go there and we also um make sure we meet regularly to go and talk things through but also with parents i think you know i see a lot of schools yeah don't don't utilize their parents mm. and i think we, we touched on this uh before we started recording about um you know about the challenges of the last few months but i think parents have, have been brilliant actually i think uh, the way that we've opened a door a window onto what we do in classrooms through home learning um by making sure that we communicate with parents around this complex guidance that has come out from the government which is sometimes unfathomable so I, I i i think we've never had such good relationships with our parents as we've got currently um and it's trusting your parents because if you've got your parents on side and your parents on board as partners in education boy the job's a lot easier and, and i've always been lucky that that relational practice has extended to the parents since i was an nqt but as a school leader it's very much making sure that um, the parents feel part of that, uh, part of the education. And that's about communication. It's about being honest with them. Our, our school values are honesty, openness, partnership and equality. And being honest with parents and being open with them about what's happening um, and making sure you listen to them as well. Because every parent that comes to you with a concern, that's a genuine concern for them. Mm. And I don't think they readily come to school. Um, There's very few parents I've met in my many years of experience who are professional complainers. Uh, They're they're, they're very few. And and, and again, it's about the ones that that, that do want to. It's about making sure you give them. I I had one parent, for example, who used to write the most challenging emails. um, But face to face from person absolutely really pleasant had some valid points but but you just had to get over the fact that the emails which are often written in a fit of peak were quite challenging so it's finding that communication uh with the parents as well so relational practice spreads across all those different agencies um and also the agencies that we um that we we, we share with health and, and social services as well on social care so making sure we all using the same language we're using um we were using motivational interviewing techniques when we're meeting with parents so we're not condescending and and and, and patronizing them because every every parent cares deeply about their child and sometimes in some need a bit more support in in helping them to um to to go and support their child better so relational practice week is the key around any school and any organization i just think it's uh it's um it, it enables it's it's far bigger than any ofsted grade any position in the lead table and the best schools i go and visit relational practices at the heart mm. that's really that's really insightful actually because we've talked a lot on this podcast about again along with consistency relationships with children you know in the class is a big one that comes up a lot so you know the way we interact with children the way we address behavior concerns um and concerning behavior not challenging behavior and 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 all these kind of things like that it's really interesting that it comes up a lot but we've not talked a lot about the that relationship being built with the parents and actually governors as well it's a really good point on governors but i really i want to dig a bit deeper with uh, what you said about parents because it sounds like you know through that relational practice that that's really developed and and helped to build this strong connection with the parents and like you've said you know if that connection with the parents is strong and positive 
that supports and helps teachers with so many of the potential challenges that comes into the classroom when they know they've got that support from at home as well. Uh, what are some kind of uh, practical things you would suggest to a teacher to try and build those relational practice style uh, connections with the parents of the children in their class? I think um, phone calls home are really important um, if um, if a child has done something really good or if you have a system where you see the parents regularly um, on the playground that you also go out and tell them some of the good things that have happened because you, you can see parents shrinking can't you when a, a teacher walks up to them on the playground at the end of the day but if you make it the norm that you're going just to say um, some good things about what's happened with a child then when you do have to have those difficult conversations it becomes a bit easier mm. um, or maybe have those difficult conversations over the phone or ask them to come in and see you um, it's making sure if a parent gets um, it, it goes and raise a concern with you that you give them a time frame for when you'll get back to them very important to say yeah i'm going to look into that and i'll get that it's it's also not playing email tennis with parents um and, and making sure i mean some of our staff like to have emails our parents but then if something's getting a bit tricky you you go and quickly go and make sure that you don't and you don't just have this um this round robin of email tennis that you go and sit down face to face uh, with mm. the parent or see them it's um it's using technology we we've uh, we had some of our staff were really not happy when they had to do remote staff meetings um at the beginning uh, in autumn term and that was more to do with their the way they view themselves on screen it wasn't they didn't want to communicate in that way it was a confidence um thing about not not liking the way they looked on screen but we've got those tools now and 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 let's let's use those tools to, to go and make those um make those connections because some of our parents um do work you know we shouldn't just be communicating effectively the ones that pick them off on the playground so making sure you you give them opportunity to have a video call we've been doing um regular meetings the deputy and i have with the parents uh, throughout the um the covid crisis we've been doing weekly meetings using microsoft teams um and we've been able to meet our whole parent body to have q a sessions to go and give them information and it's been invaluable we, we've because actually i've realized that parents don't always read the newsletters i write even though i think they're quite good so uh <laughs> the weekly newsletter and we've actually gone from doing a weekly newsletter to a fortnightly newsletter because having this um having parents trained to use teams they can now use it uh, really well of course at first it was all a bit of a um, bit of a car crash like these things uh, were in many ways but we've got this really great medium now for just saying we want a meeting we're going to um going to have a teams meeting at seven o'clock on a thursday which has become our regular time and we would give them the, the latest guidance and and and, and talk to them about that and then go and have uh question and answer sessions so that's uh that's something we want to continue with we want to continue offering parents um uh, evenings which are um have a blended um a, a blended approach where parents can um choose to have a, a virtual appointment if they don't want to face to face mm -hmm. so um we, we really do want to make sure we, we continue with that and and for some somebody like me who's very busy and I do lots of work in for, uh, which is outside of school it also improves my visibility sometimes where I might not be physically um, in the building that day um, but equally it means I'm, I'm, I'm around and available for parents the other thing I do which I, I probably wouldn't recommend to most people but um, I decided to do this when I first became head of my current school I, I gave I give all the parents my um, personal mobile phone number um, 
and the reason I do that is because we we had a, a bereavement um, in in the school, and and um, I think it was a grandparent, and and they couldn't get through to the school switchboard because it was engaged. And I thought, well, I've got my mobile phone on me. I don't have a works mobile because I couldn't possibly manage two mobile phones. <laughs> um, so I gave every parent my my personal mobile and just said, in an emergency, please phone me uh, if there's anything like that happens again. And since then, I've in ten years, I've probably had a dozen phone calls um and they've all been emergencies they've all been where they've mm. wanted to talk to me um urgently over something so that's that that's that's a, that's kind of a a, a sign of the, the trust and that we have yeah. with our with with our parents but i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend that for everybody yeah um, i think but, like you um, say that that's the kind of a step when you've built that relationship relational yes. practice for a yeah. number of years then you can start to, to show yeah. oh there's there's a lot more trust there there's a lot more respect yeah. and understanding there yeah, and I think my final point to to, to, to colleagues in the classroom um, is to you know, when parents are, are unhappy when when they are being a bit irrational, it, it's often not something to do with school. It can be some other factor as well. So don't don't take it personally. Yeah. And and I knew um, I, I don't know what your school was like in Tameside, Matt, but in the last few weeks before the summer holiday. We, we had real disruption we, we had bubbles closing and, um, and and lots of cases and and parents were really frustrated especially the ones in year six we had a group in year six who who um, couldn't finish off their primary education couldn't do their end of school play we had to cancel our our year six residential to london and and they weren't cross with the school they, they were cross with the system yeah. i think you know, just just depersonalize it like you would with a child as well you know yeah. a child you you depersonalize that with a child when they're when they're cross um and uh and and and, and angry you, you don't take it personally but try and do the same with parents because often it's something else that they're they're, they're cross about yeah not necessarily and, the school and absolutely absolutely and we would say the same about any child in our class you know if there's uh, you know negative behavior in our classroom from a child we often say there's often underlying concerns or issues or mm. problems they've got yeah. And it's the same with parents and the same with us, to be fair, as well. You know, yeah. when we yeah. act in, in an in a impulsive or an emotional way, there's often things behind that. And we need to try and be the understanding with that. And I love how you point out how in the last 18 months or so, we've had the opportunity to really jump forward in how we use technology to it to communicate and interact. Um, you know, we've I, in my one of my schools, we, we looked at Zoom parents meetings and obviously Zoom parents evenings whether you think they should be the norm or not you know it's shown that there is at least there's a way that we can connect with parents quickly and easily that if they can't come into school for whatever reason that they're not available you can still have that conversation possibly uh, and well, if you've got it, parents who are who are split and you know we've got a, a parent that lives up in yorkshire you know you can you can have, you can involve them can't you yeah. so it's um i think it's offering them i mean ours we did feedback on ours and, and our parents preferred them um but some parents will still want face to face so i think it's important that we we offer offer both as well yeah and i think that that is doable because you know i think that if you have the system like teams or zoom or whatever your school is using you know it having an appointment at a certain time on that platform is absolutely fine to jump onto yeah. and come off and then do a, a physical meeting after that which is great there's actually parent meeting software as well which we use because we, we use teams right. as our main channel of communication but there is a software that goes and means that parents can pre-book in and yeah. it, it's quite sufficient and i can't remember what it's called now but um it's it's very good 
Brilliant. Well, we'll quickly move on to, to your final of the primary three because there's been a lot of discussion. Actually, I'm going to say at this point, usually I, I keep notes. So if you've not looked, seen me looking down a lot, I've been writing a lot. I've completely filled my page that usually takes a whole interview. So I'm going to try and find some other place to write this next bit down. <laughs> but there's loads and loads that we've got from this, Simon. So thank you, first of all. Your last of the primary three is flip charts. So uh, why are they yeah, important? Well, you said on your, you said, you said on your um, brief, um, maybe a resource that you would yeah. recommend to, to, to people. So um, I mean, in a, in a former, you know, my early teaching career, I was the IT coordinator, I was the maths coordinator, I was quite quite good at tech and like bringing tech into my classroom. But the thing which I think is is transformed writing in our school is 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 the humble flip chart. And it was working with Pi Corbett and um, and and people who who've worked with Pi know these are great advocates um, of, of of using flip charts. And um, and because when I was doing um, shared writing as a teacher, my writing wasn't very good. I found it really hard to multitask and to to get my writing right i started off my, my technology when i started off teaching was one of those boards that rolled over and it was either chalk and then then the whiteboard came in but i could never get my handwriting right on those slippy handwriting things but then this the humble flip chart of course um it can it, it's just far easier to control the uh control the pen on and we we, we get the ones with with very faint gray squares on mm. so uh really good for maths really really good for um for then doing the, uh, the the shared writing and to, to getting your handwriting consistent and and because one of the things when I came to my current school was to make sure all the staff were following the same handwriting scheme and some of my staff had really poor handwriting I remember David who's a, a, a wonderful teacher in our school his handwriting he really worked so hard to make sure his handwriting was uh, was, was consistent um, yeah so the humble flip chart you see them then put onto washing lines you can use in them for modeling uh, maths and doing things so you know I think I think if all the technology goes, uh, all our teachers at our school would say, as long as I've got my flip chart, mm. we'll, we'll be okay, even if we uh, have a power cut. So, and and that's because presenting a model, a visual image to children, is really really important. And and what's great about the uh, the flip chart is that it can then be put around. But we've then moved on to also to flip chart planning, which is an electronic flip chart. Um, after visiting a wonderful school called Penwood in Slough, which was. Um, I taught for writing training school and um, and they didn't do planning. Um, they went and did something called, what they call flip chart planning. So all the modules of work were pre- prepared, um, were, were pre-prepared on the Promethean um, board uh, using the flip chart tool. And, and so now I said to the staff, well, you can, I really want to make sure we embed this planning and we're not uh, reinventing planning every September. You still see it on social media, don't you, Maths? You see, uh, I'm teaching, teaching you topic in September. Can anybody help me? You know, you know new curriculum has been in for how long? Six years? I uh, can't remember. We should not be starting topics from scratch already. But if they are, that's fair enough. So all our resources are there. They're on these electronic flip charts. So when we get a supply teacher in or whether a, a, a member of staff goes and um, goes and teaches a new group, those resources are there. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's great to have that. And we're a two-form entry school. So we share the planning across the two-form entry and, um, and we make sure that one, one teacher is responsible for, for planning 50% of the curriculum and the other teacher is responsible for planning. Um, but it's there. And, and I think workload on our school has, has reduced significantly because of the work we've done on making sure the planning and the units of work are there. And they're really high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you go into a classroom, even a, 
a, a rusty head teacher like me, I can go in, into a classroom and those resources are there. And it's, it's really helpful to, to making sure when, and also when we went into lockdown as well, we, we, we could use those same resources mm. for the teaching of the children as well. So it's been a real, uh, real bonus spending those Took, took a couple of years to really make sure those units of work um, were, were, were fully embedded using the uh, electronic flip charts as well as the humble paper flip chart that we still get great uh, use out of. That's brilliant. And I know you, you were a bit unsure about whether we could talk a long time about this, but actually I think this is brilliant because I've actually experienced uh, just how powerful the use of a flip chart is just recently. So in the new school that I work in now, every classroom has specifically every classroom has a flip chart board with flip chart paper and it's really easily readily available there's a big stock of them and actually i found that for my teaching it has completely transformed it Mm -hmm. and also you know we have working walls in english and maths and things like that to be able to take something that you've been working on as a class on that piece of flip chart in english or maths you can just take it off and then you've got it there on that working wall ready to go and you've already there reducing your workload because you have really practical relevant work that the children have been working or doing or learning from straight up onto that flip onto that board so they know what that context of that work was from they know how it fits into their journey of learning that they're working on through that that period of time and it's ready there accessible for them to see on the board as well uh, that's just one of the reasons why I love using them because, uh, again, my handwriting as well. <laughs> a previous school leader in a previous school once asked me, could, could you get your TA to write the date on the board? Because <laughs> my handwriting is just not that great either. But actually writing on a flip chart is easier. You know, and it, so do you have the grey squares, Matt? Do you have the, uh, the faint um, grey um, on your flip charts? We we don't actually, but I might have oh, to look into that. Have a look into that. They're yeah. really good, honestly. Because it, it, it just means your handwriting is perfectly level. It can yeah. help you with spacing. The children can't really see them because they're quite faint grey lines like they would be in a in a maths book. Um, but then great for doing um, for, for doing um, models and images in maths as well. So, yeah, go, go back and see if you can get a good deal on the, um, on the faint grey uh, square flip charts. Absolutely. But like you say, I think... Whilst it, it may be one of these things, and actually it's, it's these types of things that uh, can save a lot of time, like Gaz Needle on the very first episode of this uh, podcast series, one of his was a resource was keyboard shortcuts. And you're thinking keyboard mm. shortcuts is a very straightforward thing, but actually it can save you a lot of time, you know, when we when we start to apply these. And I think that, you know, understanding how flip charts can be applied and integrated into your classroom practice can save you teachers a lot of time. Yeah, because displays, I mean, I remember as a young teacher, you know, displays used to kill you, you know, they're back breaking and the, the, the sort of, I mean, we've got good displays in our school, but actually having a relevant um, working walls, like you talk about, are, are just as, you know, just as valuable. Mm. So um, Definitely. And I love the idea of that flip chart panic planning. We're actually, um, we've, we've created a website now for this podcast series where for each episode, we're going to have just a summary of like key resources or or links. Or, for example, you mentioned before the two books, David Whitaker and Paul Dix as well. You know, we'll, we'll put a link to those books uh, as a result of this chat. I'd love it if you could just share an example of that flip chart planning as well. That we can yeah, absolutely. We've got, um, yeah, absolutely. We can do that. Yeah, send me an email. That'd be brilliant. Yeah, and we're always we're always happy to share as well. And people, um, you know, people come and visit our school and look at that because it was going to see Penwood School and the work that Nick Hart was doing at the mm-hmm. school at the time. It influences to this day. It's just saved on huge amounts of, of, of teacher workload. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate your time today. Just got two final quick questions for you, uh, Simon, before we sign off. First of all, um, not this one. Who, who would you recommend uh, for a future episode of this podcast? 
Well, I'm, I'm going to make two recommendations, if, if that's okay, Matt. I mean, the first is um, um, the, the, somebody who's hugely experienced around curriculum development, around learning. It's uh, my, my friend, Ros Wilson. She um, she started The Big Right, and she's got a new book out um, at the moment. She's about to publish um, about um, about writing and, um, and vocabulary switching. She, she's a wonderful person. So, if you, And she's hugely entertaining and, and, and has, has, has a wealth of experience. Um, and she's also formidable as well so uh you you need to you need to get on here and then the other person i'd recommend is a colleague of mine called louise roberts who's been ahead a couple of years in in cheshire west and chester louise uh is is ahead in the in the town that she grew up in she took over the school when it's in quite challenging circumstances and she's also been battling um uh, battling some health issues over the last uh, couple of years whilst being a new head and she's an absolute inspiration and i spoke to louise on my school leadership surgery for teach hub radio and, and she's just an absolute inspirational wonderful guest so both of those people i would highly recommend for a future podcast fantastic thank you very much i'll add those to my list that's great and then finally uh, simon thank you very much for your insights today what for you is the best thing about being in primary education I think it's the variety, the variety of, of the, 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 the career you can have. I've, I've been now um, um, 27, 28 years. It's, it's the people you meet. And I think I would recommend that any new teacher um, goes and develops their networks and um, make sure that uh, use the opportunities uh, like Primary Rocks to, to network virtually, but to go, to go to a conference if you can and just nurture that network. I've got networks which have sustained me, which have nourished me, which have supported me and and so really you know really that's a fantastic thing and primary school teachers are are pretty you know i think they're the salt of the earth i think they're amazing people so very very lucky to have that so it's also a variety of the opportunities it can give you as well i'm now in a fortunate position where I work as part of the head teachers union, and and so I, I don't just have an influence within my own school. I have an influence um, amongst the schools where um, I work um, in Cheshire West, but also at the wider national level as well. And 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 just just you know really in, embrace the variety, embrace the opportunities, um, say yes to lots of things because you never know where they'll lead. But uh, obviously, don't say yes to everything, um, and and just go and make sure that uh, you you enjoy that rich variety that primary school uh, education has to offer and if it's not right in your school then there's other schools out there it, it, there are every school is different and and sometimes a change of school can actually help re-energize and um and refocus you as well so just because the school that you're working at maybe not uh, for you do go and have a look around at other schools and, and ask some questions about how they look after staff workload and staff um you know because that's the key for me i think uh, i've certainly learned as a more experienced head that you've got to make sure that you keep staff um, and retain staff and make sure that uh, you don't um, kill them with workload Mm, that's fantastic well thank you very much and thank you once again for your time today simon really enjoyed having on primary education voices and uh thank you for all your great advice and ideas you've given us today thank you matt great to meet you Well, wasn't that brilliant? Uh, Simon Kidwell came and gave us a lot of great ideas and uh, and resources uh, in this uh, discussion today. Um, many of you will know that I take notes as I listen to these uh, episodes, as I listen and have these discussions with these inspirational educators because I don't want to miss anything. And for this part of the podcast, I like to summarise it a bit. Well, Simon was just so easy to listen to, but just was giving so many wonderful ideas that I got to the end of all the page that I usually get to the end of for one whole episode. 
and I'd only just got to the end of the second of the primary three and I had to try and find a place to squeeze the, the third of the primary three on and I could have kept going to be honest there was just so much uh, in this discussion to take away from which uh, which really just shows um, the experience that Simon had to share with us uh, looking at his primary three keeping the main thing the, the main thing um, it was um, a really uh, wise piece of advice I think particularly as we are in a world now where teaching it's so easy to magpie so many things from so different many different places we have twitter we have facebook we have instagram we have all these platforms to gather ideas from which really when i started teaching in, in around 2014 we're only just starting to develop as, as as education platforms where teachers could learn and magpie from each other uh, before then you'd kind of go to the the tes websites or, or you know those kind of websites to find ideas in your for your teaching but now it's there's just an explosion of brilliant pedagogy excellent practice uh, that it's so easy to look at it all and um get too much basically and so this reminder from simon to do the main thing keep it the main thing and if you do want to introduce something new trialing it first in your class to see if it works and if it doesn't work that and that's absolutely fine there's not nothing wrong with trialing out things and it not quite not quite fitting your context uh, because that is how we learn we develop and we improve and innovate uh, and I just thought that, that was um, a really good uh, discussion on that. And then this idea of relational practice. I mean, we spent a long time on this and I could have spent even longer looking at how we, he applied it uh, or would apply it as a school teacher and a school leader, as, particularly as a school leader into the classroom. And I was very aware that I wanted to take this great knowledge that uh, Simon had and also apply it to the classroom for those listening who perhaps aren't in that role of being a, a school senior leader or something in, in that in that role. And basically everything he said was so applicable and so uh, really accessible for everyone, I thought. The idea that we need to work with the relationships with our children, um, but also with the parents of our children in the classroom as well. And it is obviously, you know, idea. It's the thing which we talk about very often that parents are important uh, to kind of the progress and the behavior in the classroom because they give that support from home. But it's something which we very quickly, once we get three or four weeks into a half term, very easily can forget about because we're so focused on what's happening in front of us. We don't then think outside that box that we're in, referring back to Paul Watson's box uh, that we've referred to a couple of times now since that episode um, and think about what's happening and going going on outside of that box. And so, as um, Simon said, to just... um, Give the the ideas of calling home or speaking in person to a parent when they when a child has done something positive, really really important. Giving a time frame that you'll get back to them uh, with a response, I think, is really good. It's very easy to get an email or a note or a request and just kind of take that on board and try and get it done um, without just having a quick ping back to say thank you for this. I'll get back to you such and such a date on this, and then the parent knows that you've heard them. That their, that their question or request or concern is important to you um, and that you will get back to them in a timely manner, which is a really, really good piece of advice. Very small, you know, very simple piece of advice, but really could have a lot of impact if it's done well. And then this idea, of course, as a head teacher himself and his deputy, they're using teams to have whole parent. They've, they've met the whole parent body a number of times now uh, since the pandemic has hit so that they can easily um, meet with their parents and have question and answer sessions and things like that. And I just thought that was really, really good because you send home newsletters. And as uh, Simon Kidwell said, surprisingly, parents don't always read those newsletters. 
you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it either myself. Uh, but, you know, as a parent, I, I know that I've not read every, every newsletter that's come from my, my children's school. Um, not because I don't, I don't value my, the education of my children, but it's sometimes something that can go easily under my radar. But having a, a, a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting or whatever platform you use for your parents to be able to have them all there in one place, it's nice and easy for them so they don't have to go out the house or plan for babysitters or anything like that. They can just jump onto the screen for 15, 20 minutes get that really important piece of information, hear any questions that can be asked and then log off from that. Uh, I just thought it's just a really good way of using that technology to build that relational practice with our parents. Really, really good. And then Simon, um, his third of his primary three was the use of flip charts. Uh, and as I mentioned in the, in the podcast episode, he was concerned he wouldn't have much to talk about on that. But actually, I think this is a really good shout because as I mentioned, I've experienced this in a change of setting that I've been in there's a lot more flip charts in use across the school. And I just see it as a really good way of using a very simple tool to really enhance your teaching and also your environment in the classroom as well, the learning environment you create for the children. Um, of course, there's many reasons why flip charts are useful, are practical and, and simple. So if you don't currently have a flip chart board or flip chart paper uh, in, your, in your classroom, that's probably something to look into. Anyway, all great stuff. And thank you very much, Simon, for the chat today. All that's left for me to say is that if there's a primary colleague on the Twitter sphere you'd love to hear more from, you can contact me on Twitter at Prime Edgy Voices or me personally at mroberts90matt. And let me know what inspiring primary teacher, TA or support staff you'd love to hear on a future episode. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do share it with your fellow primary practitioners. And please, please take 30 seconds, one minute to leave a review on your podcasting platform. That would really help. And don't forget to look on the uh, Primary Education Voice Twitter uh, page and look at the pinned tweet to find the new website as well. Thank you for joining me to hear another Primary Education Voice and see you again next time where we will meet another inspirational educator.